So we're in our series. We're going to be finishing up today, actually, in this section of our series called Foundations, and been rolling through some key doctrinal things from um, the Old Testament, and in particular Genesis, and these realities, these theological truths that undergird our beliefs. This is going to really lead well today, even even in the music we were singing and the readings we did next week, we're going to start a series in Romans, we'll be in Romans chapter 1, and um, our series is called The Righteous One, and this really leads perfectly, today's message, all of them really, but today's in particular Ian's last week leads us right into this consideration of who is this righteous one, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, right? So, super excited about that. I've been, after the loss of my brother, I've been um, reading a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It was written by a friend of mine named Mark Vrogop. He's a pastor in Indianapolis. And one of the things he says in this book is that one-third of the Psalms, which the Psalms as we know, the book of Psalms was Israel's songbook. It was their choir book. It was the things that they sung together on their way to or while they were worshiping. And Mark brings to attention that one-third of the Psalms are laments. They're songs of sadness. And he said he did kind of some research and had his music guy do some research and he found that 1% of modern Christian music songs are about lament. We don't do well with lament. We don't like pain. We don't like difficulty. We want to kind of scoot right over it. But the problem is when we miss lament, when we when we miss connecting with God over difficulty and pain, that we never really get to the heart of it. It's a great book. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, and this is a really interesting passage. It's a well-known passage to many of us. It's the passage where Abraham is called. The passage tells us that he's tested by God to sacrifice his son. As we read together, as we opened, it actually says to slaughter him. That causes some of us some difficulty. We don't like these difficult passages. There's really three ways to approach this passage. I found this true in my own life and also others that I've talked with and walked alongside. And the the first way, this is not my way, by the way, but I know there's people out there like this, and it's just kind of like they can take these difficult passages at face value. Really don't bother them or struggle with that. They're just kind of like, man, God's ways are not our ways, and these are things I'm just not going to understand. I just kind of accept it and move on. That's That is a way. And I'm not, there's, there's strengths to that way. So I'm not, um, if, if you're kind of wired that way, I'm not dismissing that, but that is a way. And the second way is kind of the ditch that I tend towards, which is to view this passage as something more troublesome. Why or how would God do such a thing? Why would he create ten commandments, one of which is do not murder, and then ask a father to kill his son. This is disrupting me. 
I'm frustrated. I'm disturbed by God's actions, and I don't know what to do with it. It's hard to talk about in the Christian community without looking a little bit like, you know, you're an immature believer, and so you really don't say anything, and that kind of angst and frustration lays just on the surface, and then when we're reading the Bible, it kind of pops up, and we don't know what to do with it, so we just kind of leave it there. But then life pushes in, we lose somebody, something seems unfair, and all of that comes to the surface. Someone might, like me might say, well, at least I'm being real or genuine, where other people... There's strengths to this, to really want to know and to understand. And this is a way to look at this passage. But there's a third way, and that is to admit that this is a difficult passage. There's some really perplexing things here. If we really believe this is God's Word and it's an account for us to learn and to grow from, that there's something going on here that is deeper, that lies below the surface. It has meaning for the whole of Christian life. It serves as a foundational passage for Judaism as well as Christianity. And yet, as big as this passage is and as much meaning as it contains, it's practical enough to influence and impact my daily life. It's all about God and His glory. And yet, mercifully, somehow, it's also about me. It works itself into the minutes and relational interactions of my daily life. So that's the view I want us to take. This is one of the most foundational narratives of the Christian faith. It's important that we just not gloss over it and be indifferent to the ways that God has chosen to act and just kind of let it remain surface. And so, in some ways, although viable, the first view that I talked about is insufficient. But it's also important that we not bring our limited Western perspective to the text and judge God and be frustrated with his ways. And so the second view is also insufficient. And so this third view that I'm asking us to take hold of, God intends for us to walk away with a deeper understanding of his great and profound love and also his faithfulness and his mercy and his justice. So Ian, you just did such a great job setting up this sermon by enunciating in your teaching God's faithfulness and His mercy and His justice. So Genesis chapter 22 is the narrative story of Abraham and Isaac. It's the high point of Abraham's life. It's also a high point of ancient literature. So even people who don't claim Christianity or even Judaism, but they're all about ancient literature. This becomes a book that is filled with all kinds of symbolism and wonder in the way that it was written. Its structure, its layered depths, its writing style, it's a high point of ancient literature. The story is intense, 
it, it's, it reads kind of like a movie. It, move, it moves really fast, and then it slows down at just the right points and gives detail. It's supposed to kind of make you feel and emote while you're reading it. It's a story that is shocking. It's perplex, perplexing. It's, in, it's absorbing, and also it's enlightening. Because of its depth and the complexity, there's, like we've talked about before, there's so many realities or lessons that could be unearthed in this passage. But my, my hope in, is to capture the essence of the passage. What is it that God intends for us to know from this story? And how are we to respond? How are we to live, to love the Lord more deeply and to relate to Him? So there's four major movements in the narrative. Verses 1 and 2 is the essence of the call. The second movement is the shock of the test, verses 2 through 10. The third movement is the provision of the Lamb. And the fourth movement is the promise of blessing. And so as we move through these passages, my aim, in case I get lost in the weeds, or you kind of aren't hanging with me, my aim is to make this One major point. God-worshipping, God-pleasing faith is the faith that is carried out to obedience through belief in God's justice and His mercy and His faithfulness. So the kind of faith that worships God and pleases God. Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. The kind of faith that pleases God carries itself out to practical outworkings of obedient faith that's just not something religious people do, but it is rooted in a, I believe you're this way God, and I believe what you say is true, and you're just and you're merciful, and you're faithful. So that's the point we want to keep coming back to through this passage. So let's start through our four movements. The first one is the essence of the call. We read it together. Jason led us. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And this call is similar to the call that we talked about when I was teaching through Genesis chapter 12. There's some similarities, and I want to highlight how this call is similar to the first one. Two ways. In both of these calls where God is calling to Abraham, he says, go and leave. But Abraham does not know where he's going or where he is leaving to. It's to a place where I will tell you later. And we see that again in these first two verses. In other words, start your journey of obedience without seeing the end result. And my hope is that even when I say that, you should go, Well, that's the way he asks us to do it, isn't it? Yes. 
Start your journey of obedience without seeing the end result. Hey, church, when we demand an end result from God before we obey, He is not God. We are. We just want to manipulate Him and get Him to do life our way. And so when we say, I'll do whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, and that is up to you, and I'll follow you, because I trust your heart towards me, and your word is always true, you never go back on it. That's faith. But when I demand to see the end before I obey, it's not obedience, it's agreement. But God says to Abraham, go, leave, to a place I will tell you later. It's somewhere in this land of Moriah. He knows it's in this general vicinity. And then he's standing in the area. And then after three days, that should bring some thoughts up to us as well. After three days, he gets an understanding. Oh, it's that hill. The Lord tells me I'm going to that one. And so he loads his son up with wood on his back. And his son, the sacrifice, marches up the hill. The second part of this call that's similar is that he says to Abraham, offer up to give, to sacrifice. Remember when we were in Genesis chapter 12, God asked Abraham to leave this vicinity, his father's house, all of his father's belongings, the security of generational riches, this area that he lived in, that was like a Babylonian, Babylonian area that was very rich in resources. And he's saying, leave all of those things, give those things up, sacrifice those. In other words, relinquish or obey without the guarantee of specific outcome. So these are two ways that the call of Abraham is the same. And so we begin to see... This not only in these two callings, but throughout Abraham's life, Abraham's life was a life of calling and responding in faith. And remember, we talked about this. Nick, great choice of songs and the readings. We talked about this, read about it. Will we obey perfectly? No. Did Abraham obey perfectly? No. But what? But awkwardly. But Abraham's life was a life of calling and responding in faith. He responded in faith when God called him. And not just once. What we see in the life of Abraham is carried throughout the rest of the Bible. And that is the calling of God is not just a one-time event. It starts there. Nobody becomes a believer without being called by God. We know that from Romans chapter 8. But the reason that this narrative is central to doctrine and to our faith is because it puts faith in God's character and His word or His promises at the center of of any life that desires to follow the Lord. We've talked about this multiple times, but the unique characteristic of Christianity is this. We do not earn our salvation. True? We do not earn our way into heaven. And here this 
relationship with God by faith alone, not by what we do, is born in this narrative in the life of Abraham. It is important because it puts our faith in God's character at the center of our lives. Our faith must serve as the center. Our faith in what? In God's promises and what he says. So here's what's true about the calling of the Lord. Oftentimes we hear, what does it mean to be called by the Lord? What is the calling of the Lord? I want to talk about this a little bit because it comes to Abraham numerous times. But here's the first thing we know about the call of the Lord is that we do not possess a relationship with the Lord without being called and responding in faith. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. But here's what also is true. We do not progress in a relationship with the Lord without being called and responding in faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18, verses 2 through 11. So a relationship with God is both initiated and matures through a life of calling and responding. Are you with me? We grow because the Lord asks us to obey when we do not see the end result of obedience. Which, by the way, is the hardest time to obey. True? If I know that if I do... Hello? If I do certain things in my marriage and it guarantees me a result, will I not do those things? The hard part is when God says, I want you to obey my word in the context of your marriage, even when it doesn't turn out the way you expect, and I'm still going to be faithful, I'm still going to do my job. That's faith. But we... We'll nod in agreement that, oh yeah, I know we don't, that God doesn't give us the end result, but friends, this works itself out into the practical realities of our life, true? In relationships, in marriage, in business, in the way we handle things, in the way we parent. Well, I'll do it God's way, but only if it guarantees. See, it makes so much more sense because in my own mind, I can calculate and adjust and conjure up and think, and I can actually lay out steps one, two, three, four, five in my own mind. And so I'm way more prone to go my own way. Why? Because I can manage the end result, or I think I can. And God says, that's not faith. And so a relationship with God is initiated and matures by a life that listens for the call of God and then responds by obedience. We learn this here in this narrative about Abraham's life, but this truth is also affirmed and expanded on in the New Testament, and in particular we see it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out, you can underline this, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, this is key. 
for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's life was rooted, his decisions, the way he acted and daily functioned was rooted in this reality that he had no other foundation except that which was found in God and by God. I have nothing else but you, Lord. You are the foundation of my life. And whether we know it or not, whether our culture knows it or not, whether the people around us know it or not, here's what's true. There is no foundation without God. We talked about this, if you remember, way back in January when we started in Genesis chapter 1 and we talked about this reality. You take God out and there all hell breaks loose, literally. There is no foundation for anything. And so this is the essence of the initial call that's made to Christians. Those who will follow God. When you begin to understand that you have no other foundation but God Himself, and you begin to shape your life around that foundation, you are responding to the call of God. When you begin to understand, man, I don't have anything Nothing in my life works unless it's built on God. When you realize that, you're hearing the call of the Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus, at some point in your life, you have realized, I have no moral standing without the Lord. I have no emotional Stability without the Lord. I have no psychological anchoring point without the Lord. I have no intellectual standing without God. When you begin to realize at a base level your need for God, you are hearing the call of the Lord. Story of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a famous theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He didn't start out as a uh, theologian. He actually started out as a physician. He was up and coming in a hospital in London. Um, He was very bright and intelligent, but he was religiously kind of apathetic. He was more of an agnostic. And he was uh, at a hospital. Everybody was liking him. He was gaining popularity. He had a lot at his disposal, and one of the older physicians at the hospital that had been there for years and everybody venerated him and looked up to him had a girlfriend, and that girlfriend that this um, mentor of uh, Lloyd-Jones, who was a mentor of Lloyd-Jones, his girlfriend died. And he came into Lloyd-Jones's office and he had a, um, a fireplace and he said, could I please... Just come in here and sit by your fire. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, sure, you can do that. And so the guy came in and he sat in his chair by the fire and he just sat there for two and a half hours and did nothing. And by his own testimony, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this scene had a major impact on me. And he says this, I began to realize by watching this man the vanity of all human greatness. Here's a man that has everything going for him 
and he loses the one thing that he's finding stability in, and he has nothing. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's at that moment that I begin to hear the call of God. I need God. By the way, this is the call of the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing, there is no foundation. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you don't have God, eat, drink, and be married because nothing matters. Now often when we start our following of God, we hear this call and we say, yes, I have nothing. And we respond, it's primarily, at least in the beginning stages, it's a decision of intellect and volition, but it's not yet heart. In other words, we choose to submit to the reality of God as our foundation, but it's not a tested reality yet. So the minute God calls us almost on the heels we begin to hear other callings. God begins this process of actively making the reality of Him being our foundation experientially true by removing every unpredictable pile of sand that we unknowingly cling to. True? We're standing on them. We think they're solid. We have to be shown that they're not. So we might say, God is my foundation. And yet functionally, human approval, relational validation, status, security, finances, family peace and unity, success, appearances, These are just a few I've pulled from my own life. You might be able to pull some from yours. These are the operative gods in our lives. So we say God is the foundation, but our checkbooks and our calendars betray us. So it's like standing on a sandbar in the middle of a rising river. And God says, I must rescue you from your faulty foundations. True? Because there are no foundations other than me. And so God in His faithful, loving kindness consistently rescues us by testing us. Genesis 22 says, or calling us. Two, like Hebrews 11 says, look forward to the city that has its foundations, whose builder and designer is God. God wants to rescue us from our sandy foundations and place us on Him, stable ones. And so when we realize that God is exposing these false foundations and we are called to believe and trust in Him as our only firm foundation, hear me, you are hearing the call of the Lord. Don't resist it. Church, He's loving us. 
by destabilizing the things that we're clinging so hard to. It's not unloving. So when we cling to these things that our heart tells us we must have, it's like sand in our fist. So ironically, isn't this true? The older I get, the more true I see this. Simply by the way life works and what time and experience expose, all the tangible and intangible things we cling to that our heart and our flesh scream out for, you, it would be beneficial for you and to me to list those things. What is my heart screaming out for? And he, if you have a hard time identifying that, let me just give you a little exercise, okay? This is based on some wisdom from James chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to James chapter 4, verse 12. Here's a way to know what your heart and your flesh is clinging to you. Whatever you have the most arguments and conflict about, you're clinging to it. If you're willing to go to war for it, whether that be affirmation or validation or whatever it is, if you're willing to go to war and disrupt and distort relationships, I'm telling you, if you're a believer, the Lord is going to call you off of that sandbar because He loves you. Church, let us listen to His loving call. Because these things that our heart and our flesh scream out for will at some point be exposed as utterly unworthy foundations. True? Haven't you experienced that? Man, the things I used to cling to, it's not like God's ripping them out of our hands. doesn't need to. The world is so broken, sooner or later, they will disappoint us. They will be utterly exposed as unworthy foundations. And church, we can never live a life of faith if we are clinging to competing foundations. Some of us struggle with this growing, changing reality. And some of it might be that our lives and our faith is struggling because we're trying to span two cataclysmically far foundations. If you're constantly devastated by criticism or failure or living in fear of losing something or being rejected by people or whatever it is, you name it, if we're devastated by these things, we will have virtually Zero capacity to live by faith. And we will not experience the joy that Jesus says, I have come to bring you joy. The joy that the Father longs to give you. We won't have it. So God says, like He said to Abraham, listen to the call. Go to the place 
that I will tell you. Offer up. Give it over. That takes us to the second part of movement of this passage, the shock of the test, verses 2 through 10. I think it is important for us to know, like I started off with, the Psalms, one-third of them is lament. I think it's really important to know that God understands, He's so loving and kind like a good dad, He understands how hard this process of foundation removal is. He does. And He captures it in these narrative stories, and He puts it into this place where most of us in the room, if you're a mature child even, but especially if you're a parent, you get the intensity of what it would look like to have to try to give up one of your children, let alone kill them yourselves. True? This story is supposed to disrupt us and make us go, man, that's uncomfortable. What the heck is that? That's weird. Why would God do that? That's unjust. That's not... We're supposed to do that to the story. And we're going to see that more clearly when we get to the end. It's supposed to move us and motivate us. Because there are times in this calling process when we feel like the God who claims to be our foundation is shaking us up. Or worse, he's killing us himself. Many of you know my middle son, Luke, uh, for three years uh, was a shepherd. He had some sheep, and he was telling me uh, about how sheep farmers, shepherds, treat their flock for deadly diseases and parasites. They fill up these big troughs that they can't reach the bottom of, and they get their sheepdogs, and they herd them with panels into these big vats, And I don't know what he said, they're 15, 20 feet long. And so all these little sheep are landing in this vat. They have to jump in there to get intentionally, so they actually go under the water. And if they're not under the water, the shepherd dunks them, and they're panicking, and their eyes are bulging, and it's like this complete free-for-all. And Elizabeth Elliot, if you remember her husband, Jim Elliot, uh, was speared to death with some of her closest friends in Ecuador, And she was actually at a farm in Wales watching this whole process happen. And this is what she says. One by one, John, that's the name of this shepherd farmer, he seizes the animals. They would struggle to climb out of the side of this vat and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back into the tank and under the water. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John, the shepherd, would catch them, spin them around, and forced them under again, holding them ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. This was all to get rid of these deadly parasites and maggots that would kill the sheep, that would take their life if not treated thus way. And so then, after seeing this process and how, in some ways, violent it is, Elizabeth Elliot makes this question in her mind. She says, I wonder what it is like for the sheep to have no explanation for this good being done to them, yet rather believe that their shepherd is killing them. 
And almost always, she, almost immediately, she answers her own question and says, Oh, I know what that is like. She has felt the pain. By the way, she actually lost three husbands. She has felt the pain of her shepherd caring for her while she actually feels like he was killing her. And so when we come to verse 2 through 10, the account is supposed to and often does stir up in us a sense of discomfort and unrest. So if you read this story and you're like, why is that in the Bible and how weird is that? That's what God intended for you to do. Why would God ask Abraham to do such a thing? Why would God ask a parent to willfully take the life of their child? Guys, I recommend good books like Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and you know, Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, and Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Uh, Tim Keller's book, those are three fantastic books on pain and suffering. We're not going to answer all of those questions here today, but the Bible has lots to say about it because it doesn't, it doesn't undermine the reality of human pain, but actually highlights it. But as Western Christians, we've been raised on a theology that puts man's psychological needs at the center of our relationship with the Lord. It's completely and utterly wrong. We think somehow God is here to fix me, and especially now, everybody's a victim. And kind of like, you know, the little guy in Incredible says, when everybody's a victim, nobody is. That's the shame of it. Because there are true victims. But when everybody is, nobody is. We put man at the center, and then everybody, you know, now we're even... When I was doing counseling, I actually had people come to me who had other counselors tell them they needed to write a letter forgiving God. That's blasphemy. Okay, God needs no forgiveness. We may not understand Him. I totally understand that. We, it may be hard to understand Him, but He has not sinned against us. He needs no forgiveness. But this entire narrative, if you're looking at it from the outside in, seems unmanaged. It seems unfair and unjust, but we have to keep some things in mind when we're reading this passage. Again, we're not going to answer all these questions, but here's some things that we have to keep in mind while we're reading this and understanding this narrative. And the first one is this, God is always just and fair and merciful and has his children's and people's best interest in mind. He does. And how do we know that in this story in particular, God is intending to do good. This whole thing is about blessing Abraham and Isaac. And all the generations that follow, this foundation of the story is, I want blessing to come to you and redemption through the entire world. And somehow if we get lost in the details, we start demonizing God when he's intending to help. And redeem. Are you with me? Have you done it? I've done it. We've got to be careful about that. And another third component that we have to keep in mind when we read the story, we carry so much of our culture into the Bible and read the Bible through our cultural lenses. Hear me. Faithful obedience is not just to make our lives better. 
And we think it is. We do. If I just obey, then my life is going to get better. And if my light doesn't get better, well, somebody is accountable for this, right? We go to a hotel, we don't like the bugs in the bathtub. Somebody's going to take care of this problem. Because we've been raised with that. Somebody's going to serve our needs. You can have your best life now. But faithful obedience isn't just about that, although it happens. Faithful obedience is generational in its impact. This story isn't just about Abraham and Isaac. We're still reaping the benefits of this story now. What we do in obedience to the Lord, even when we can't see, blesses our kids and our grandchildren and their children and their children's children. Church, we forget about that. We want to limit, this has got to work for me and mine, and after that I really don't care. Abraham, I'm telling you, he did not think that way. So to be sure, this test was foundation-shaking for Abraham. We aren't necessarily privileged to to see his exact feelings come out, but we can reasonably speculate from some of the wording when God says, your son, your only son, your son that you love, and some of the way that Abraham responds to his helpers while he's going up to the hill. But Abraham would have been profoundly disrupted by this whole process. Some key things for us to take away from this shaking test. We're skipping along the surface, but again, I'm wanting us to get the big points here. And there are three of them, and this is it. The first thing we're supposed to take away is we are supposed to be shocked at the appearing injustice of a son being sacrificed by a father for the benefit of blessing of others. That's supposed to bother us. Secondly, we're supposed to connect and empathize with the heart of a father who gives up his son for the sake of others, even when he can't see the end. That's a major component we're supposed to pull out of the story. And we're also supposed to realize that God knows that his call is often perplexing and hard and difficult and yet he still calls us to him as, a, as the foundational reality of our lives. Are you with me? These are important realities for us to take away from this story. And that leads us to the third movement, the provision of the Lamb, verses 11 through 14. So here's this shocking test. Abraham was called to give up his firstborn son for the sake of this blessing that would come through him to all the nations. And while we're not taking anything away, Abraham would have been deeply perplexed. There are some things that Abraham knew that we might not. And one of the things that Abraham would have known that we see later in Luke chapter 23 is this. Abraham knew that the firstborn of everything, man and animal, belonged to the Lord. That would have been his mindset. The firstborn belongs to the Lord. They're set apart for the Lord. This is why we see so much about firstborns in the Bible. Luke 22.23 says, As it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
What we should understand is most theologians say that if the, if Abraham would have thought he heard, Abraham, I want you to go back and sacrifice your wife. He's like, no, I wouldn't do that. I must have heard something. I must be delusional. I, I, that was, a, you know, um, uh, what is it called? Anyway, I was delusional. I didn't get that right. I didn't hear right. He would not have done that because it didn't fit their understanding and his mindset. He would not have followed through if asked to take the life of his wife. But the firstborn, this promised one, belongs to the Lord anyway. Secondly, again, Abraham's mindset, his cultural reality, would have been the benefit of the community and not the individual. So here's this firstborn son. He belongs to the Lord anyway. He's going to bless a multitude of people. It must be that the Lord is going to use this This death of my only son, whom all this blessing is going to flow through all these people and nations, the Lord must be using this somehow, even though I don't know how, to bring blessing to people, and so I'm going to obey. And the third thing that he would have known is that he would have believed without sight that God's justice and mercy and faithfulness would prove themselves in the end. He does tell his servants that were with him, me and the boy are going up here to worship, and then we're both coming back. So somehow in his mind, he knew whatever is going to take place, God's going to take care of it. And that is why his faith pleased the Lord. But it wasn't easy, church. And this is the part I really want us to relate to obedience when we don't see the end is really hard and God knows it. But it's the foundation of our lives to live off what God has said based on His character that produces true fruit regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of your circumstances. And so with these things in mind, Abraham acts accordingly and he raises his knife in faith by But he was stopped. While God's promise still stood, the blessing would eventually come through Isaac, as we read. But hear this. But here's the problem. Isaac would not have been a sufficient sacrifice. Because we need a sinless sacrifice to atone for the sins of people. So why is this stopped? God never intended this to happen in the first place. This was more of a test, a help a foundational restructuring lovingly for Abraham. But Isaac would not be able to cover or be a blessing through his death because he was not perfect. So God provides a lamb. And so this theme of a spotless lamb provided by God will be continually run throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Nathan brought this up in his talk a couple of weeks ago, his teaching a couple of weeks ago on covenants. But this perfect spotless lamb will run right through Exodus chapter 10 when the Passover is established and leads us right up to the prophet John the Baptist when he raises his hand to introduce Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The promised blessing of Isaac has arrived. He's here. And so 2,000 years later, in the land of Moriah, 
in the very same hills that Abraham named, the Lord will provide the very Son of God, His only Son, the Son whom He loved, carried His own wood on His back up a hill. But He wasn't saved. He died. In those same hills, the land the Lord will provide. And Jesus becomes the sacrifice for all nations, for all generations. That's good news. And so here's the promise of blessing, verses 15 through 19. God comes to Abraham a second time and affirms that it is through Abraham's faith Look at verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Church, our obedience is bigger than us because of the Lord. Because of Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness, the entire world All nations, generation after generation, would find hope in the shed blood of the Lamb, the Son of God. God affirms that Abraham's act of worship pleases him, that it's carried out through to obedience, through belief, and trust in God's justice and His mercy and His faithfulness. And Abraham, that will have generational redemptive ramifications that are going to go so much farther than you can see. And he commends him for his faithfulness. But even in these words in verse 15, God was doing something else. He was modeling for all generations, for us, what an appropriate response looks like to the appalling, unbelievable, self-sacrificing love that would cause a father to give up his son, his only son, the son he loves, for the generational benefit of others. You with me? He is exemplifying when he says to Abraham, because you have done this and not withhold your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. See, you see how violent, you see how disturbing, do you see how disruptive, church, that angst that we feel at this story? We should turn towards the Lord and say, I cannot believe you did all of that for me. You did that for us. This injustice, this seemingly, but you, you didn't make Isaac... Abraham, go through with Isaac, but you went through it for your son. You understand injustice like nobody understands injustice. And so this for us, church, starts this application process because our first and the most appropriate response that we should have to this story is this. Heavenly Father, Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, the son whom you love, because you have not withheld him from me, 
I will bless you. And this word bless means to kneel before. In other words, to revere you, to do good to you, to serve you. This is what God is saying He's going to do with Abraham. But now we get to say it to the Lord. Lord, because you have not withheld your son, I will bless you. I will revere you. I will do good to you. I will serve you. I will make you fulfilled and delighted. In our case, I will pledge my life and my attention to you. I will worship you. Church, that's where all obedience has to start. You with me? This loving adoration and gratitude, Lord, because... Then I will. He's not looking for begrudging obedience. He got that from the Pharisees and he hated it. Because you have not withhold your son, I want to make you fulfilled and delighted. I pledge my life to you. And the second application is, I will trust and believe your promises, your word, your truth, and your intentions towards me and those in my life. I will trust your justice and your mercy and your faithfulness. I wrote this for myself as I was responding to this passage. I will no longer justify my behavior based on my circumstances or wiggle out of obedience by my intellectual trips to the weeds. How often do I do that? I wrangle with God's truth and make it turn it into something it's not and I'm obeying my way and not His. Just I want to, because He has given all to me, I want to trust and believe His promises, His truth, His word, and His intentions to me. And then lastly, that flows out of it, without demanding a vision or without demanding seeing the end result, I will obey you. Period. Because you have not withheld your son, I will bless you. I will trust and believe your character. I will obey you, even when I cannot see. And Father, we want, we need the kind of faith that obeys without sight. And we need your help to this end through your Spirit. And we're thankful that you promise it to us through Him who lives in us. Amen.